Well, dudes, you got one more week or what? Yeah, man. Two more weeks. Well, yeah, this weekend, like a week from Friday, we're done. <laughs> you should just crush it, dude. Make a ton of plans and just execute the heck out of them. Mm -hmm. I'm seriously fighting that urge like crazy. Like, I need people to remember how good I did here. Mm -hmm. Make a plaque. Make a bust of yourself. That's a good idea. That's it, man. Paint something like, super ugly and then, like, have a special mass where you dedicate it in the church so it can never <laughs> be moved. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. So, Rob Juice Johnson, what's the topic? Dang it, dude. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that today. <laughs> I really, really was. You don't do anything for this podcast. Did you? <laughs> Dude, I, well, this is freaking shooting from the hip, shooting from the hip, but it is the feast day of Athanasius, which is pretty cool. And one thing that Baron did say, and we've kind of talked around this, but maybe never specifically on it. Uh, I was very struck when Baron was talking about uh, the three things that Archbishop Gomez gave gave him like what was it be with the people give them hope and teach them doctrine mm -hmm. and uh i actually talked about that i gave the little reflection again this monday at the communion service and talked about athanasius and i hope i had this right i don't know i was kind of shooting from the hip there to be frank but uh <laughs> athanasius was the great like defender of orthodoxy against arianism correct mm -hmm. Which is, like there was a time when he was not um is arianism right the whole like um christ is a of, superman not a He's not God. He's just a really, really high person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, which is very interesting because more and more, and we've talked about this a lot, so we can talk about something else. But that whole that whole notion, you brought it up like a month ago, Bisque, of um, like vicarious penal substitution, but the gospel actually being, um, you know, God became man so that man could become, could become god and i just that's all i offered in the in the reflection i believe that's athanasius that said that you know it might I actually it it is. Might. is it Irenaeus or I, athanasius yeah, I, I don't know i think it's sure. Irenaeus actually Irenaeus. yep um i'm not sure but what i agree what to I disagree did, anyway disagree. <laughs> but what's cool about that and i don't think a lot of people understand is just the what i was trying to say in the reflection was that just the the drama of salvation and i used the when i'd been in rome before and looked at the pieta um what's very cool about the pieta in rome is that it, it i think michelangelo actually designed that thing to be an altarpiece to sit up on an altar because hmm. if you look at mary's hands in it she's not really like holding on to Jesus. So the explanation I got for the Pieta was that it was supposed to sit up on the altar and look like Jesus was like falling out of Mary's arms into the world. Whoa. Um, which is pretty cool. And it, it, you kind of see that in a, in a typical Catholic church. You have crucifix, and then under that you have tabernacle, and it kind of 
flows to the it kind of flows to the the altar there and so you see this great drama of god finding us us not finding god but god coming after us and so it's it's dynamic and it really is like it it moves and it um but we see in these figures athanasius being one that drama played out on you know high stakes scales which is cool to to read about um so i I, i'm rambling because i am shooting from the hip but i just love that image of the pieta being an altarpiece and jesus falling from mary's arms into the world and what does that look like it looks like the mass today Mm. being swept up into that relax well i will i'll offer this uh experience i was praying about this morning actually last night when i got back i went up to my parents house for dinner after masses and uh my pastor's been on vacation all week he got back yesterday for masses in the morning but i had the place to myself so everybody who called everybody who needed anything i was johnny on the johnny on the spot and one thing that happened last week was that a guy uh was dying he's an 85 year old guy and uh, his family wanted me to come on Thursday to come talk to him and he was in bed on hospice and I talked to him for a while he was pretty coherent um I don't know how, how many dying people you've been around when they when they get close when they're still able to communicate it's kind of hard because like of the breathing and stuff like that and you don't know how you know, if they have dementia or something like that, if you can really carry on a conversation or if what they're saying, if they mean what they're saying. But anyways, it was a, you know, I asked them basic stuff like, are you scared? No. Um, I'm amazed how many dying people I've asked that question and almost no one ever either at least admits that they're scared. Hmm. Um, mostly men, I guess. But that's just been my experience. Yeah. Are you happy? Yes. You know, talked about his family. Are you proud of your children? He said, more than my life and all this stuff. And uh, so I gave him anointing and prayed with him a little bit, talked to his family, and then I left. And then I, I gave him my cell phone number. I said, you know, if you need anything or if he asks for the priest again, just give me a call day or night. I'll come by. So Friday night we had the school play and I had the youth group come in to, you know, eat dinner and then go to the play. And I get a call right before I'm about to go over there. You know, he's on his last legs. Can you come by? It's like, sure. So I drive over there and, um, you know, now he's really dying and you can tell. Um, So I did the commendation of the dying prayers in this little green bilingual book I have, The Pastoral Care of the Sick. Mm -hmm. And I'd only ever seen it when I was on internship. I saw my pastor do it one time for this kid who was dying of cancer. It's got this really long litany of saints, and it's a very—it's the most beautiful prayer that I've ever prayed out of that book. Um, and part of the reason is that it's not—it it doesn't beat around the bush. It's like t- it talks directly to the Christian soul. It's like Christian soul, you depart from earth into the hands of God, and all this stuff. Mm. And is really commending the person, and there was all this family was there, and uh, prayed with them for a while and left and they they told me 15 minutes after i left he died and so kind of an intense experience and um 
just a lot of that kind of stuff happening last few weeks. And then, uh, so I was praying with that image of like sending a Christian soul into the hands of God Mm. in his last breaths. And then Sunday, like I had had three masses on Saturday, three masses on Sunday, Mm. baptism, uh, a memorial service for somebody else who died. And so it gets to Sunday at like one o'clock in the afternoon and I'm just tired and I don't want to go down and greet people after the noon mass, which my pastor celebrated. I was like, it's the last thing I'll really have to do today. So I might as well just go do it. You know, the people will want to see you go, go shake some hands. I'm standing out there kind of tired, like yawning and people are coming up saying buenos dias and have a good day. And I'm standing there with my hands at my side. And one of the things I like, the Spanish mass is where most of the young families come. So there's a lot of small children and they make the like if a kid doesn't voluntarily lift his hand up to shake my hand i'm talking like two three-year-olds two or three-year-old kids they'll like grab the kid's wrist and shove it into my hand (laughs) so that they they're like saluda al padre say hello to the priest and uh so i'm doing shaking adult hands shaking the little kids hands and then i just have my hands at my side and there's kind of a stream of people walking by and i feel my right hand get grabbed by a little tiny hand and I looked down and it was this little girl I recognized from preschool, from our preschool, who the, I really remember her face. Like the preschool is kind of just a mass of uh, balls of energy. These kids, like they're hard, hard to distinguish because their yeah. personalities haven't differentiated very much. They're just like, ah, I hear them screaming on the playground mid-morning every day. But I remember her because like early on in the school year, it took her a long time to get used to not being at home. So she would just kind of be in the corner crying. Uh, this little girl, she didn't want to play with the other kids. The other kids are going nuts preschool style, like any art project, any playtime. They're just having an awesome time. <laughs> and she would just be kind of crying, <laughs> just really sad, crying, wants to go home, wants to be with her mom. So I remembered her face and she was with her mom there after mass. And she was the one that just grabbed my hand like to shake. She she probably wasn't looking at my face that I would be like greeting her. She's just used to seeing the priest's hand in front of her. So she just kind of grabbed it and shook it. And I looked down and I was like, oh, hello. And it's just this tiny little experience. But I guess, I mean, the reflection, if there is one, was uh, how much just a broad spectrum of human experience you get as a priest. Um, you know, it's like, your this is your family but at this one of the same time like there's tons and tons of frustrations of like i wish people did this i wish people knew this and just like a parent i'm sure you're just frustrated by your family a lot but you also have these moments where you're like yeah this is why i do this um and i don't know if i'm like the the little girl shaking my hand thing if i'm communicating how profound that was but I didn't even think about it that much at the time because I was tired. But before I went to bed last night, that just that memory struck me. You know, does that ever happen to you where you're kind of going all day, not really thinking about stuff? And then like something will just pop out like, oh, yeah, that happened today. Yeah, Um, that was really beautiful. That little girl who I remember being so insecure and afraid of anybody that wasn't her mom. And now here she is like just happy and. And she has, she's changed in school. She's been 
every time I've seen her, she's like tries to talk to me and she's interacting with the other kids. So I don't know. You just get a you get a glimpse into the bare soul a lot as a priest, and it's intimidating, but but beautiful. Well, yeah. It yeah, it's interesting because in a way that's like what you began with, Rob. These are those are both stories of Christ like spilling out from the church into the world in the drama of salvation. Both of those stories somehow tell that like very real way by you going and anointing that guy and sending a Christian soul to heaven before he dies. And that's the cusp of, you know, our physical reality leading him into the the next reality, you know, right there. Uh, and then even the little kid, you know, a very, very simple story. I I have a, a little kid story as well, but it's it's very eerie, to be honest. And it, it happened last night and it kind of freaked me out. Was she coming but, out of a well with hair in her face or something like the ring? Yeah. Did she and come I was out like, of your TV? <laughs> No, because once they come out of your TV, man. That's what I, that's the first yeah. thing I thought of when you said an eerie little kid story. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of like that, except without any <laughs> any similarities. <laughs> so she's coming out of the well, and I'm thinking, where did we get this well from? <laughs> that reminds, that well reminds me of a tweet fast. I saw. A tweet I saw that said, "Well, the movie's it's basically like Scarface, only there's a maid and she's in Manhattan." <laughs> 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 yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this story is basically like the ring, only none of that. <laughs> um, so after the mass, had a well, had a tremendous weekend, um, and then got back and had spent the whole morning, partial afternoon, working with the kids with special needs at the camp, um, the retreat that I was at. So then got back just in time for youth group. Then we had the five o'clock mass and then we had another youth group life team. And then the eight, the seven o'clock mass got out and they had like a little dinner afterwards. So it's like nine, nine thirty, super full day. And I'm, I was pretty exhausted and, uh, just kind of mingling with the people and talking to some of the kids from the life team group that are still there. And then some of the, some little girls come that I taught, um, for the PSR at the parish and they are like the cutest, most adorable, just like innocent, wonderful balls of energy. I think that's a perfect description of them. The two loudest, you know, biggest mouths would not sit down and be quiet during class, but they just have no, no guarding their hearts, just total affection all the time. They have no capacity to limit their love. Like they just haven't developed that virtue yet. So they're just... <laughs> all the way in all the time and so they're just running around and are as compute as cute as can be like just adorable and they're like trying to get me to like pick them up and hold them and they're third graders and so you know you have the whole self-awareness thing of like oh my gosh i need to be so i'm like in the big social hall and i'm like i need to be hanging out with these kids with other people mm -hmm. because i feel like everyone's watching me as oh, we're God, just talking it that's honestly the worst. So bad. And so all that being said, I have like at one point I have both of them, like one on each hand, uh, and they're just twirling on the ground. So it's like kind of a dance twirl thing, and they're just like <laughs> laughing, and we're playing, and there's other people around and things like that. 
And one of the girls looks up and she goes, when I see you, I think that you are um, the father of this other girl. Like you look like you should be her dad. And the way that she looks at you, this is a second grader. Wow. Like that. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, Oh, okay. Well, Holy smokes. Did not see that coming. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know? And she's like, yeah, I really mean it. And saying it with all this sincerity and just cuteness, like overflowing from her. And the other girls just like spinning and dancing and they're both laughing. And I'm like, yeah, well, I don't know, is your mom here? Or is your dad here? And while she's still spinning and dancing and laughing, she just kind of looks up at me and goes, oh, no, he's in jail. And I'm like, mm. oh, man. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Um, like, do you still get to see him and things like that? She goes, no, I haven't seen him in a, like a super long time. But he's going to be getting out in a year. I'm like, well, how long has he been in for? And the whole time they're playing and laughing and being like super cute while she's telling me all this. Wow. And she's like, oh, he's been in jail for four years because he sells drugs. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, dude. I, I'm hearing one of the most heartbreaking stories and experiences, um, relationships in this little girl's life all through like this lens of innocence and just absolute cuteness and really childish, like just being very, very childish. And like within all of that simplicity, there is this super difficult um, truth of sin and um, the fraction of relationships and like the injury that's going to be caused to that family all present there within this little girl. And it was really, really difficult. And she, and so then she just kept coming back to like, oh, yeah, you're like, when I look at you, I see you like our dad or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. you're you're being such a great father. And she had no concept of like the priest as being dad, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But and I think she was just speaking honestly and truthfully there. Um, but it was a weird combination of, of things that was happening there because, um, well, it's just not what you expect when you see these cute little girls like, you don't expect to have them talking about probably what's going to be one of the most difficult relationships in their entire life while they're laughing and joking and dancing and mm. spinning. So it was, um, it was kind of strange, but it was very impactful in that way. Um, to even see like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to try to bring it around to your point, but really like the Lord is spilling out even into those moments within the church and seeing how, our church in and of itself here is definitely a community, a family. Like she's there with her grandma and just to see how the Lord uses all of these little things. Um, to well, what's striking people. to me about the, that story and what it's making me think of is not so much the spilling out. I mean, that's part of it. But the point I think, Rob, you were talking about is God became man so that we could become God. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of like self-aggrandizement, but that we do live his life and do his stuff that i mean it makes you feel part of what's so bittersweet about that what's like at the same time really inspiring because she sees you as a father figure but also heartbreaking because she needs a father figure because her own has failed her or isn't around like stepping into that role is is feeling god's own sentiment of like i will i will be your father i will shepherd you you know I remember um, 
down to the orphanage. I mean, that was when I, <clears throat> the part of my discernment preparation for priesthood that most made that role of the priest so obvious to me was that like at this orphanage, the only person that gets called father is the priest. And um, I remember the after I was ordained a priest, I went back for a first mass and there was this little girl who I remembered from years prior when I went down as a seminarian. She was sort of just kind of didn't behave, couldn't behave, maybe had some learning disabilities or something like that. But that year when I went down there for a week, she just like attached to my hip and she kept asking me, are you my dad? Um, and then she just started calling me dad and the kids would make fun of her like, he's not your dad. And she's like, you know, get all mad and say, yes, he is. And like, you just look down at this little girl and they're like, you know, I'm not going to tell you, no, I'm not, you know. And I don't know your story, like the way that you kind of heard that little girl story. Um, but that, I mean, that's what why I go down. I just bought another plane ticket to go down this summer because it, it reminds me of that role of what, why the priesthood, the way that it is in the church is necessary, why God chose to have it to be this way. Um, because widows and orphans and, and the, I mean, what is, is it John Vianney said the, the priesthood is the heart of Jesus's mercy or something. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's the priesthood is loving the heart of Jesus. Is what he the says. love of the heart of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that, I never really, I, st I still don't understand that or what that really means, but maybe that's what he's aiming at is like Jesus' own mercy when he looks at the world. He could have said like, you know, everybody's screwed up my world. I tried to make a paradise for people to live in, um, but they've decided to be selfish and make it a, a hell on earth, the kind of place that would kill its own God. And But he doesn't respond with anger. He He comes into it and you know, brings that, brings that love and that mercy to it and then does so through human hearts. And the priesthood is just a, you know, one particular way that that happens. And it happens constantly in, in the heart of every Christian. But I mean, that's my experience on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, sometimes you're impatient. Some, I, to me, one of the things that's been really hard and what I've been praying about and with is like my own pride. Because Priesthood, Christianity, taking up your cross, all this being a servant is humiliating so much of the time. And it's the, it's, to me, it's like the really, really little things, the way that people sort of just, um, I don't know, maybe just because I'm a prideful person, like to be at others' beck and call, like my time is not, to not have my time respected, I guess that, that, that like kind of hurts my pride to just have people like assume I can be at their back and call at, at a moment's notice for the most, you know, meaningless of tasks yeah, because that's can, my job. They make demands. Yeah. And it's like you, everything in me wants to say like, do you know who I am? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but to like really die to that and actually like plunge into the humiliation and like see yourself as a slave of the servants of God. That's, ooh, gosh, that is so profoundly uh, self-effacing. But otherwise, like if I'm always standing up for myself and my own pride and what I think, how I think other people should treat me, no servant is greater than his own master, you know? If they mistreated me, they'll mistreat you. 
and I'm not saying that I'm mistreated all the time, but you just, I mean, uh, if you want, if you want the profound God moments, like I am seen as a father by this orphan or this heartbroken little girl, or I get to, you know, shuttle a soul off into heaven, then you have to also wash feet and get nailed to a cross and, and all, I mean, it's all or nothing, you know? What's, I was uh, kind of going back to your initial story there, Mets. Um, what I was relating it to, very interesting, because then I think, Connor, you were talking about it. Yeah, in a sense, like these, uh, you know, sometimes emotions, uh, but this this love that we feel is is truly a or an experience of the love that God has for that person or this person, whoever's in front of us. Um, but I was I was thinking back, Father Father Paul Murray, when he gave that retreat at Mundelein, he said something. I don't remember what context it was in, but he said just in his years of spiritual direction, he has found that as someone actually matures in the spiritual life and can really get to a point where they're naming what's going on in their life and there's a lot of growth happening and just a lot of depth like coming in their spiritual life. He said that a lot of the time people are actually more afraid of the light than they are of the darkness. And so there's like this little bit of a crutch in thinking that, yeah, I am, you know, just there's some little part of me that isn't redeemable. Like, or this this like one little thing in my par- heart is so dead that like it's just I'd have to close the door on it. And then realizing as you go deeper and deeper into the spiritual life that the deepest thing of all is is light, is is Christ. And so they're more afraid of that than the darkness that they the shadows that may they may encounter to get there. Um and that's a profound point but i I remember a priest talking about in a homily one time i think he was a newman center chaplain actually and he said that he had you know he had been at this place for a little while and the the summer or like the spring prior to when i heard him give this homily he said that the these this group of students that he had had they had just graduated from the college he was at and they went off to be missionaries somewhere somewhere fairly dangerous. I don't know. I don't remember where it, where it was, but he said that, you know, he had seen these students come in, uh, kind of a, not an atypical story for like someone that has experienced conversion at a Newman center, you know, college students looking for fulfillment and, and found it in, in the church at this Newman center on, on campus and, you know, became disciples, gave their lives to Christ and felt a call to be, these missionaries. And he said that as they were, he went to, with them to the airport to give them a blessing and kind of be with the families as they left. And he said, in a very legitimate way, I, these people could die where they're going. I mean, they, that could be the last time I ever saw them on this earth. Like they could be martyrs today. It's very possible. And he said, it just hit him like a ton of bricks. He said, that's my fault. Like I was, I was the one that that led these people to 
Christ, to this relationship that, yeah, is defining their lives and fulfilling them. But is whether it ends in a martyrdom of blood or not, it's going to cost them their life. Hmm. And his his point was, he was, you know, he said he was like, as a Christian, as someone that wants to spread uh the faith, the church, Jesus, he said, you better believe what you say you believe in because it's not just your life that's at stake. And the reality is people, God is going to use you to work through you, divinizing you to reach others. And it's going to cost them their lives. So you better believe what you say you believe in or you're going to have a big problem hmm. with this. And I, Mike, your story with that little girl, you know, I've seen that kind of in myself, not, not anything like that, but there's this experience of like truly loving people. And I've noticed it, especially in kids of like, man, you don't know what's coming. Like you just want to protect them, right. man, from everything. And I get that. Like I get helicopter parents, honestly, even though I wouldn't like, I hope that wouldn't be me, but I get that, man. And it's just... Uh, you don't want their hurt, their feelings to be hurt. You don't want... Yeah. Yeah, man. And um, But that's just the reality of like... It just seems like... I don't know. When you were telling that story of that little girl, there is... There's kind of a blunt reality there that, yeah, I mean, God's going right. to work. And I hope that through, through you and different priests, like she's going to experience the fatherhood of God. But that's a... That's a very broken situation that's a that's a heartbreaking story um and that there's nothing you can do to fix that besides rely on god and so it is that is a haunting eerie is the right word for that to see like the joy and the innocence of this little girl and for me it was just like my gosh like she has no idea what's coming right And, and i guess you have to understand again like go back cross as a threshold like hopefully yeah, my prayer is that through that experience and and maybe, you know, conversion of her her dad, maybe he'll come back and be a great father, you know, through through that. Sure. Um, but hopefully she'll know God's fatherhood deeper. But eerie is the right word for that. Yeah. And to be honest, it was like just really disturbing in a lot of ways where these two things should not be together. But, you know, I think that's the experience a lot of times for the priests because I don't know if this is the right word, but you, you, you have like a sympathy, you share a feeling with God. So his feeling of love within this brokenness, like, I don't know theologically what that term is, but what we get to share in how he's looking at and feeling towards well, creation. It's kind of like towards carbon his... synergy, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. And there's, these are two things that should not be together, which I'm sure is like, well, yeah, it was, it was very difficult. Um, but what, what I kept thinking about was as internship has progressed towards the end and we're getting closer to the end, um, it's been, (laughs) it's been devastating to see how little of an impact I've had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. Oh my gosh, dude. I could just as easily not have ever been here, you know? And that's, 
it's true in a lot of ways and it's probably more untrue than than I think but um like the project that I was working on I had this big project plan just took a huge dump on that like totally fell through um some of the people that I've been meeting with weekly like kind of just trying to help them help them along um have both I think as I'm leaving now both are in worse situations <laughs> than when I first got here. Um, and then like just tons of experiences similar to you going and anointing that guy as he's dying or being in that really, um, really eerie situation with those kids. It's, it's difficult, but it also at least has been kind a little bit of a grace to see that those situations when you're in them, they kind of push they push our trust. And I think for me, they've pushed, um, my faith in a lot of ways to become more concretized. And so in the same way, like we talk about our priesthood, having faces of people and, um, like our trust in God, it looks like something. And when we're Christians, like it, it looks like something in everyday life. And the thing it's come back to me for is hope. What is my hope in? Like, what does that look like? as I am progressing towards the end of internship and seeing how all of these difficult situations that are not turning out like how I want, that there's two things that I'm thinking, these two things should not be together. Like, what is my hope in that situation? One, what was my hope going into it? And two, what is my hope like as I'm leaving it as well? Because I think a lot of times, you know, you can begin a situation with like, oh, this great conversation and like, oh my gosh, this person... They want to come back and see me because I was so helpful. And you put a lot of hope and, and trust in yourself in those things. But as the situation really gets to the heart of the matter, at least for me, it's been um, becoming more real what my hope in God looks like is having the trust to say, yeah, I, I believe that I am not the hope for this person. I believe that I am not going to be the the savior of these different situations which I know we do we do talk about quite a bit in the podcast but I've had a, a lot of very real circumstances that have pushed my they've kind of prioritized things or distilled like hope himself hope in the lord and really tried to put him at the center of a lot of these things that I don't think I would have been able to do unless these difficult situations presented themselves and not just presented themselves, but also began to fall apart so that I could really be totally, I guess, more reliant, more reliant on the Lord. Um, but yeah, that was, I did not have my hope in, in the Lord in a lot of those things. I think I put myself as the solution for many of those, um, many of those relationships, but it's, mm -hmm. It's been really tough to see how everything is crumbling, but even there, there's an invitation to put my trust and my hope in the Lord. Like He is it. He is it. And if I'm going to say that, that looks like me leaving internship right now with things in shambles <laughs> of the things that I thought the, th the things I thought I was going to fix. I'm not going to fix them, hmm. which means that there has to be there is another solution, and it's a guy and you know, just uh, a deepening in that trust and a really hoping, hoping in the solution to all those things as being the person of Jesus Christ, which 
is looking like something more and more in my life. The more that things fall apart and the more that, yeah, I have conversations with people that I have no clue what I'm doing and I certainly can't fix. Um, yeah, you know, I was thinking about like the Holden Caulfield catcher in the rye thing about not wanting how that character doesn't want the kids to lose their innocence, even though he's so smug and cynical. Um, and he sees the world as pretty kind of just a wicked place full of liars and phonies and stuff like that. And, um, I don't really identify with the cynicism of the book, but I do identify with this, like you were talking about juice and what I think you're communicating with that, with this sort of angst about not being able to fix things whether it's people or their lives or whatever. Like you just know that the world will break people's heart. Yeah. And you don't want it to happen. Like you see it coming, whether it's a kid or a family watching their parent die. You know, I was ministering just as much to that family as I was to the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of my... One of the things I've kind of realized and now I try to fight against is like at funerals or wakes trying to kind of stand up for God, mm-hmm. you know, like you can still believe in him even though your hearts are breaking. It's like in some ways that's it's so trite, you know, oh, they're in a better place. It's like, you know, we don't have to stand up for God. It's like God is the only one who's sending people into these situations that the world is producing that are heartbreaking and saying i'm here you know it's because i was a catholic not because i'm some really nice guy a really great guy or really love being around families who are sad that i'm sitting there in that room praying with that person it's because i'm a catholic priest and years ago christ called me in my selfishness and my whatever um to follow him and little by little he's like kind of by hook or by crook gotten me to to sort of, he's kind of taught me how to live, you know? And I feel like every morning I wake up, I'm just like, God, teach me how to live. I don't know how to live yet, you know? Like how to even like go to bed on time and pray the right way. And I'm just, you're just sort of like grasping for straws and then he'll put you in a situation. uh, It's like, okay, now do this for these people. Read these words and sit here. Um, you're like, well, that's a way more fruitful thing than me, like in my limited capacity to envision a future or an ideal situation and try to like organize. I mean, priests have to have vision, we're leaders, but like the idea of having some preconceived outcome and then working toward that, it's it's um, it's impossible. We can't see it. <clears throat> we just have to follow the light onto our feet of like, what's, okay, what's the next right thing? And your conscience tells you like, okay, they're calling, you have this school play to go to, but it's more important, you gotta go to this, go go pray with this person. And um, the world is just breaking people's heart and they don't know how to be with each other, they don't know how to relate, how to be civil. Families are broken apart by selfishness and sin and you you just like, you kind of, I mean, this is like the Graham Greene vision or the George Bernanos Diary of, your country, Diary of a Country Priest or Calvary or like any of these movies that we really identify with that tell the real story of what's going on in the world. 
that people's souls and people's families and people's relational lives are just torn apart by blindness and ignorance and greed. Um, and what's the priest's role is to just, I mean, because they're just as much a victim of that heartbreaking world as anybody else, but we've been touched with something, you know, and have a job. And that to me is, um, well, it's the only thing I've found, <laughs> you know. There's no, there's no better plan. This is God's plan and you just, you surrender to it because what else can you do? You know, it's yep. Peter. You have the words of everlasting life. So yeah, whatever you say, I'll do it. Yeah, that resonates very deeply of, of it's the only thing I found. I, when you were both talking, I was thinking of, uh, and I've talked about it a couple of times before, but uh, the book A Grief Observed by Lewis. Yeah. And and one of the one of the lines he says in there uh, is that he's noticed throughout his life over and over his faith or what he believed his faith was, was nothing but just a, a house of cards that God in his mercy has has blown over. And so his point in that book was that, yeah, his wife had just died. And he thought he had faith in Christ, and he didn't. Like he said, you know, when it really hit the fan, like God showed him in his mercy um, and, and definitely in God's arms. It wasn't, it wasn't a, like a judgmental or harsh um, punishment, but showed him that, yeah, I mean, no matter how smart you are, accomplished you are, whatever, you know, you're a, you're a kid, you're a child of, of God and he will take care of you, but he's not going to let you think that this house of cards that you've built is, is him or, or your, your real faith. Um, and it is heartbreaking, man. It's very heartbreaking, but it's just over. And the thing is, it's over and over and over again. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. But I mean, the reality that you live in then it's like, yeah, over and over and over again, your dad is just there to help you back up. Um, and the initiative, the initiative is on him and not you, you know, and uh, if you don't, if you're not okay with that reality, then you're not okay with Christianity. Yeah, and it's I, him, God blowing over the house of cards, I think is that's like spot on because it's it is a continual creation of an idol like oh this i got this god thing and like here's christianity and then he just comes and smashes it and he's like nope that's not it that's just aspects of it for sure but you're this is an idol this isn't me you know and so the difficulty is it's in everyday being kind of obliterated and having to start over but it's also a new creation, like living in the reality that God is truly present in creating us in every situation, in every moment, in every day, which it's surprising and exciting and painful and difficult. And you're cleaning up messes of your obliter obliterated, idolatrous heart, but then he's recreating you in this new way constantly. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. it's such a mystery. Yeah. And the image for me, I guess, is simple as it is, because that all in my life, when it's been authentically God, 
that obliteration it really is like that that house of cards is is blown down man but it's so gentle and it doesn't it doesn't hurt honestly but it really is you you see yourself for what you are but then you see yourself in in god's eyes and it's for me like the analogy is coming to mind as simple as it is is just it was like learning to ride a bike man and just over and over again you know, falling, falling down. And just the blessing in my life was that, yeah, I remember this. Every time my dad was there to to pick me up, you know, to clean, clean up the, the scrapes and the cuts when there were some to make sure I was okay, but then to also put me back on the bike. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think, like, if you take the broad, what I'm thinking of as we're talking is this, the broad story that we believe is that it all went wrong the moment human beings said, I want to decide mm-hmm. what's right and what's wrong, the way to go forward. Um, and a lot of times we have those, they're not like overtly sinful or contrary to God's law, but the redemption that we longed for from the beginning of the human race was one of us to just be obedient, you know, mm-hmm. to obey. And not and not in the sense of like be a slave, even though that's what it looks like sometimes, but to just stop thinking that you know the answer and and trust me, you know, and then you'll be free. Mm-hmm. Then you'll be free of all of this confusion and darkness and trying to figure out your way when you actually don't know the way. You don't know it, you know. Our salvation is in realizing that. And then signing on to and like the whole cave analogy of like grabbing this person's hand, believing what he says, and then actually putting that into action, like doing doing the things that he tells you to do. And I guess what is occurring to me right now is that the priesthood, the great temptation of the priesthood might be that we're saving people. You know, mm-hmm. we know the answer. We've figured it out. And so follow me, you know, you're coming once a week to talk to me and your your marriage is bad or you're in some situation, I'll save you. Oh, your dad is in jail. Um, I'll be your dad. And but you can't you realize like I can't do that. I can't do anything about this. Like all I can do is play with you right now um, and be your dad in this moment. But then I'm going to leave you and your the world is going to go break your heart and all this stuff 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And and you want to be God. But the way to actually be him is to go do what he did, which is be totally obedient to the Father. Go down instead of up. And so, yeah, as a priest, you are a mediator of salvation. You are saving people. But you are also being saved daily from that hubris and that pride by your plans regularly being demolished, you know, or your expectations being dashed or, you know, your failures coming to the forefront of your of your vision of like I can't do it and that's part that's part of the whole story and it's uh, maybe the necessary I mean do you think Christ right before he was about to take up his cross was like yes this is the plan let's do it (laughs) (laughs) totally right on oh man people are gonna be so pumped when they see me up on this cross I would assume yes but (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's never come up in the stations when I'm praying yet. Is that, the, <laughs> well, that's probably zero. That's station zero. 
right before it really begins. I, well, the, Jesus wasn't rejoices. the Last Supper, the committee yeah. meeting, the committee meeting they had about like, mm. what's what's the plan for evangelizing the culture? Okay, how about you? How about you betray me? And then I go get tortured and mm-hmm. then killed on a cross. How about that's mm-hmm. the plan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody's mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do So email us the notes of this meeting. Mm-hmm. And then John's like, oh, I'm going to streak. And then just takes off naked. <laughs> it wasn't John. That was the, that's supposed to be Mark, right? Because that's in Mark's gospel. Oh, is it Mark? Yeah, it's a little kid. It's only oh, in Mark's yeah. gospel. Yeah, that one of the guards grabs a kid. I guess it, yeah. The cloak. I- and he runs away naked. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, and by the way, this is great. So, yeah, I get it. Priests aren't life coaches. But Three Dogs North, we're yeah. still life coaches, right. correct? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not even a though priest, the, Even so... though we just gave this super depressing episode. It was really depressing. Hey, can I just, <laughs> can I just drop a line right quick that's been actually... Ugh. I don't know. It's been a comfort for me, at least in internship, because I got, I got to be honest, like I agree with a lot of what we talked about. And I, I mean, very, very, very much so. But I don't know. In, in my experience, it has it has hurt sometimes when like I find out that God is operating in a different way than what I expected. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like getting a call on Monday to find out that one of the girls I've been working with is in jail, you know, in juvenile prison. And you're like, what the frick, man? What the heck? This is the worst. And now, like, I got to go and visit her and she's going to be super alone and afraid and sad and scared. And like, this is this girl that I've grown to really care about. And and why is she in here? This is the worst, God. Why are you doing this? And the phrase that, um, that's that been, an, at least, a, yeah, a comfort for me is, I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but um, suffering allows for Christianity to not crystallize into mere doctrine, but allows it to be born in the flesh. And mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways it's been clear that what I have always thought about as Christianity can be simple concepts or ideas Mm -hmm. of how to view the world like science or like Buddhism or like some other philosophy Mm -hmm. or getting things done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pragmatism, activism, whatever. Act this way and your life will be awesome. Totally. But when I have things these plans or these idols, you know, I, I call them idols, but me fixing the world isms get totally crushed. It is like a bearing the reality that Jesus is the answer, not just in my head, but like in my heart and from my heart being lived in my flesh so that it's not just in my brain, but the suffering of having my house of cards blown over, which I want, I need that because it teaches me how to live. It teaches me to be Jesus when I walk into a room with people. Like I am Christ and and that's the reality. And so when I have my own idols blown over and he, sets you free. he lives within me, right, we're talking about a whole nother ball game here. Mm-hmm. This isn't a fancy phrase or like 
you know, a cool bunch of sayings that will help us out. No, yeah. It's like, <laughs> you know, you look at somebody like Asif or the great saints, they live these things in their, in their bones. That's so know? true. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's, but even there, it's not anything to be, it's not anything to be scared of or like it's going to be, it's going to be too much ever, 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 never that. Um, and that's been my experience. It's never been too much. It's been exactly what I need. And so there is this gentleness that as it's, as it's occurring and as I bring it to the Lord, he's constantly still there, like holding me right, right there, right close to his heart and saying like, yeah, this is okay. This is a good thing that this is happening. Um, with constant love and affection throughout, but this is a good thing, but this is really what I am. Not this. You, I'm more than what you think here. And it's just, yeah, that constant gift of himself in a bigger way, like a more true deep way than I, than I was ready for. <laughs> yeah. And so he's just constantly coming in more and more, more and more so that there is no distinction between here's my time with God, here's me with God, and then here's me being me. Like, nope, it's just all one. Mm -hmm. I, I want it to be that way. Like I go to my holy hour to figure out awesome things to say in my homily, you know, like this utilitarian view of the relationship with God when, in fact, the relationship is everything. It's the point. It's the starting point. It's the finishing point. It's the reward itself. And to me, the the thing that I've been my mantra for the last week is something I heard Scott Hahn say at this lecture downtown I went to. Uh, he was paraphrasing, paraphrasing Therese where she said, God gives me whatever I want because I want whatever he gives. Um, and that's, I mean, such a simple Theresean, uh, you know, aphorism, but it's so true to my experience like that. That is, when you're happy, I'm happy. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I mean, like, if you love me, do what I tell you to do because you're going to want the same. Th love is wanting the same thing as the other person. It's not feeling something. It's not like believing something. It's wanting something. And wanting the same thing as God is what Jesus did in the agony in the garden. It's like, not my will, but yours be done. This, this mysterious confluence of wills, it's not competitive, you know. And you get drawn up into so then it's right now. What do you want? I'll do it. I want what you want. Uh, and if it's this person who's trying my patience because they want you know me to come over there and do something I don't want to do, or if it's you know this profound heartbreaking experience of death or sadness, I'll do it. I want it. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.